Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. May and June have both been very busy months for me in a lot of different ways. That sound, by the way, under my voice is a little something special for episode 100 of Social Distancing Radio. It is just wild to think about the fact that this is the 100th episode. It's not even counting the Patreon episodes either, so gosh, with those, we blew past 100 a long time ago. But I wanted to do something to mark the fact that we've hit the 100 episode mark. That's come out weird, but I don't edit this show, so oh well. Anyway, uh, one of the things that my editor is always on me about, and rightly so, is that I reuse words too often too close to each other. So that sound under my voice is the sound of the Atlantic Ocean at Sunset Beach, North Carolina, around midnight on the night of the full moon in May of 2021. The wind in Sunset Beach just roars, especially at night. The wind is so strong that the beach patrol keeps track of how strong the wind is blowing and will drive up and down the beach telling people to take down their canopies and take down their umbrellas and all that sort of thing if the wind gets too strong because it is possible for the wind to destroy those things or for them to break free and become projectiles which I learned this year at Sunset Beach when the canopy that we had set up was nearly destroyed and very nearly became a projectile Anyway, the wind, that night, the wind is just like beyond description. In the fourth book of the Withrow Chronicles, Attempted Immortality, that's something that I tried to describe and to convey to readers. The wind is just unbelievably powerful and intense there. And for whatever reason, every time I'm there and I walk on the beach alone at night, Then I find myself thinking of that scene in Dracula where the Whitby, uh, in Whitby, where the Exeter, the Exeter, the Demeter, I don't remember now what the name of the ship is. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> and I don't, and I don't edit this, so I can't fix it. So anyway, that scene where Dracula's ship rides the storm into the harbor in Dracula, in uh, in the town of Whitby, in Dracula. 
And it always makes me think of that. I'm never totally sure why, except that, you know, that's another scene where he does a really great job of describing sort of the way that the wind lashes the coast as the storm rolls in. And then the way that the ship is very nearly broken apart by riding that storm into the harbor. So, at any rate, I just wanted to share a little of Sunset Beach. If you are listening to this because you've read my books, and God help you if you are listening to it listening to it for any other reason, but if you're listening to this because you've read my books and you happen to have read all the Mithra Chronicles, then have just a little bit of Sunset Beach right now for, let's say, 10 seconds. There we go. That's what Withrow experiences, except that I've cranked the volume down by 20 decibels <laughs> from what it was at when I recorded this. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap up this intro, probably just in time for that sound to end. And then I'm going to do the episode and then at the very end, after the credits. So stick around for the long haul if you're really interested in this. I'm going to drop the sound file that I recorded without reducing the volume at all at the very, 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 very end so that you can hear what it's like to stand on that beach at night and listen to that wind just absolutely whip at people. So... Thank you for your patience. As I said, we're back. And, you know, I've gotten vacation in. I've gone to a convention. I've done a ton of day job work stuff that's been really time consuming. I've had very little brain power at the end of the day lately because of that. And I've gotten some really good writing done, I think, on the second autumn book. So, fingers crossed for that. Let's get back into Dracula. When last we met, Jonathan Harker was out there doing his, uh, his, I think I called it his uh, Rockford Files impression. He was out playing detective and paying bribes. So let's jump back in with him there. I'm going to back up one paragraph just because it's been a little while. But before I do that, fear not. I'm going to have a sip of reading wine. Mm. Oh, that is so good. Oh, that is good wine. Mm. Oh, yeah. Okay, this it needs three. It's been a while. It needs three. Okay. Okay, yeah, now I can do it. Now I can actually read. There was a present, nothing to be learned from the Piccadilly side, and nothing could be done. So I went round to the back to see if anything could be gathered from this quarter. The mews were active, the Piccadilly houses being mostly in occupation. I asked one or two of the grooms and helpers whom I saw around if they could tell me anything about the empty house. One of them said that he had heard it had lately been taken, but he couldn't say from whom. 
He told me, however, that up to very lately there had been a notice board of for sale up, and that perhaps Mitchell's sons and Candy, the house agents, could tell me something, as he thought he remembered seeing the name of that firm on the board. I did not wish to seem too eager or to let my informant know or guess too much, so, thanking him in the usual manner, I strolled away. It was now growing dusk, and the autumn night was closing in, so I did not lose any time. Having learned the address of Mitchell's sons and Candy from a directory at the Berkeley, I was soon at their office in Sackville Street. The gentleman who saw me was particularly suave in manner, but uncommunicative in equal proportion. Having once told me that the Piccadilly house, which throughout our interview he called a mansion, was sold, he considered my business as concluded. When I asked who had purchased it, he opened his eyes a thought wider and paused a few seconds before replying, "'It is sold, sir.' "'Pardon me,' I said with equal politeness." but I have a special reason for wishing to know who purchased it. Again he paused longer and raised his eyebrows still more. It is sold, sir, was again his laconic reply. Surely, I said, you do not mind letting me know so much. But I do mind, he answered. The affairs of their clients are absolutely safe in the hands of Mitchell's sons and candy. This was manifestly a prig of the first water, and there was no use arguing with him. I thought I had best meet him on his own ground, so I said, Your clients, sir, are happy in having so resolute a guardian of their confidence. I am myself a professional man. Here I handed him my card. In this instance, I am not prompted by curiosity. I act on the part of Lord Godalming, who wishes to know something of the property which was, he understood, lately for sale. These words put a different complexion on affairs. He said, I would like to oblige you if I could, Mr. Harker, and especially would I like to oblige his lordship. We once carried out a small matter of renting some chambers for him when he was the Honorable Arthur Homewood. If you will let me have his lordship's address, I will consult the house on the subject and will, in any case, communicate with his lordship by tonight's post. It will be a pleasure if we can so far deviate from our rules as to give the required information to his lordship. I wanted to secure a friend and not to make an enemy, so I thanked him, gave the address to Dr. Seward's, and came away. It was now dark, and I was tired and hungry. I got a cup of tea at the aerated bread company, and came down to Purfleet by the next train. I found all the others at home. Mina was looking tired and pale, but she made a gallant effort to be bright and cheerful. It wrung my heart to think that I had had to keep anything from her, and so caused her inquietude. Thank God this will be the last night of her looking on at our conferences and feeling the sting of our not showing our confidence. It took all my courage to hold to the wise resolution of keeping her out of our grim task. She seems somehow more reconciled, or else the very subject seems to have become repugnant to her, for when any accidental illusion is made, she actually shudders. I'm glad we made our resolution in time, as with such a feeling as this our growing knowledge would be torture to her. I would not tell the others of the day's discovery. Duh, I've lost my place. Great. Hi, welcome to the podcast that I don't edit. <sighs> anyway. I could not tell the others of the day's discovery till we were alone, so after dinner, followed by a little music to save appearances even amongst ourselves, I took Mina to her room and left her to go to bed. The dear girl was more affectionate with me than ever, and clung to me as though she would detain me, but there was much to be talked of, and I came away. 
Thank God the ceasing of telling things has made no difference between us. When I came down again, I found the others all gathered round the fire in the study, and the train I had written my diary so far and simply read it off to them as the best means of letting them get abreast of my own information. When I had finished, Van Helsing said, This has been a great day's work, friend Jonathan. Doubtless we are on the track of the missing boxes. If we find them all in that house, then our work is near the end. But if there be some missing, we must search until we find them. Then shall we make our final coup and hunt the wretch to his real death. We all sat silent a while, and all at once Mr. Morris spoke. Say, how are we going to get into that house? We got into the other, answered Lord Godalming quickly. But, Art, this is different. We broke house at Carfax, but we had night and a walled park to protect us. It will be a mighty different thing to commit burglary in Piccadilly, either by day or night. I confess I don't see how we are going to get in unless that agency duck can find us a key of some sort. Perhaps we shall know when you get this letter in the morning. Lord Godalming's brows contracted, and he stood up and walked about the room. By and by he stopped and said, turning from one to another of us, Quincy's head is level. This burglary business is getting serious. We got off once all right, but we have now a rare job on hand. Unless we can find the Count's key basket. As nothing could well be done before morning, and as it would be at least advisable to wait till Lord Godalming should hear from Mitchell's, we decided not to take any active step before breakfast time. For a good while we sat and smoked, discussing the matter in its various lights and bearings. I took the opportunity of bringing this diary right up to the moment. I'm very sleepy, and shall go to bed. Just a line. Mina sleeps soundly, and her breathing is regular. Her forehead is puckered up into little wrinkles, as though she thinks even in her sleep. She is still too pale, but does not look so haggard as she did this morning. Tomorrow will, I hope, mend all this. She will be herself at home in Exeter. Oh, but I am sleepy. They are such idiots. That's me, Michael. That's my editorial comment. They are such idiots. I love this book, and they are such idiots. Dr. Seward's Diary, 1 October. I am puzzled afresh about Renfield. His moods change so rapidly that I find it difficult to keep touch of them, and as they always mean something more than his own well-being, they form a more than interesting study. This morning, when I went to see him after he re- after his repulse of Van Helsing, his manner was that of a man commanding destiny. He was, in fact, commanding destiny, subjectively. He did not really care for any of the things of mere earth. He was in the clouds and looked down on all the weaknesses and wants of us poor mortals. I thought I would improve the occasion and learn something, so I asked him, What about the flies these times? He smiled on me in quite a superior sort of way, such a smile as would have become the face of Malvolio, as he answered me, The fly, my dear sir, has one striking feature. Its wings are typical of the aerial powers of the psychic faculties. The ancients did well when they typified the soul as a butterfly. I thought I would push his analogy to his uh, to its utmost logically, so I said quickly, Oh, it is a soul you are after now, is it? His madness foiled his reason, and a puzzled look spread over his face. As shaking his head with a decision which I had but seldom seen in him, he said, Oh no, oh no, I want no souls. Life is all I want. Here he brightened up. I'm pretty indifferent about it at present. 
Life is all right. I have all I want. You must get a new patient, doctor, if you wish to study zoophagy. This puzzled me a little, so I drew him on. Then you command life. You are a god, I suppose. He smiled with an ineffably benign superiority. Oh, no. Far be it for me to arrogate to myself the attributes of the deity. I'm not even concerned in his especially spiritual doings. If I may state my intellectual position, I am, so far as concerns things purely terrestrial, somewhat in the position which Enoch occupied spiritually. This was a poser to me. I could not at the moment recall Enoch's appositeness, so I had to ask a simple question, though I felt that by so doing I was lowering myself in the eyes of the lunatic. And why with Enoch? Because he walked with God. I could not see the analogy, but did not like to admit it, so I harked back to what he had denied. So you don't care about life, and you don't want souls. Why not? I put my question quickly and somewhat sternly, on purpose to disconcert him. The effort succeeded. For an instant, he unconsciously relapsed into his old servile manner, bent low before me, and actually fawned upon me as he replied, I don't want any souls. Indeed, indeed, I don't. I couldn't use them if I had them. They would be no manner of use to me. I couldn't eat them, or... He suddenly stopped, and the old cunning look spread over his face, like a wind sweep on the surface of the water. And doctor, as to life, what is it after all? When you've got all you require, and you know that you will never want, that is all. I have friends, good friends, like you, Dr. Seward. This was said with a leer of inexpressible cunning, I know that I shall never lack the means of life. I think that through the cloudiness of his insanity, he saw some antagonism in me, for he at once fell back on the last refuge of such as he, a dogged silence. After a short time, I saw that for the present it was useless to speak to him. He was sulky, and so I came away. Later in the day, he sent for me. Ordinarily, I would not have come without special reason, but just at present, I am so interested in him that I would gladly make an effort. Besides, I am glad to have anything to help to pass the time. Harker is out following up clues, and so are Lord Godalming and Quincy. Van Helsing sits in my study, poring over the record prepared by the Harkers. He seems to think that by accurate knowledge of all details, he will light upon some clue. He does not wish to be disturbed in the work without cause. I would have taken him with me to see the patient, only I thought that after his last repulse he might not care to go again. There was also another reason. Renfield might not speak so freely before a third person as when he and I were alone. I found him sitting out in the middle of the floor on his stool, a pose which is generally indicative of some mental energy on his part. When I came in, he said at once, as though the question had been waiting on his lips, What about souls? It was evident then that my surmise had been correct. Unconscious cerebration was doing its work, even with the lunatic. I determined to have the matter out. What about them yourself? I asked. He did not reply for a moment, but looked all around him, and up and down, as though he expected to find some inspiration for an answer. I don't want any souls, he said in a feeble, apologetic way. The matter seemed preying on his mind, and so I determined to use it. To be cruel, only to be kind. So I said, you like life and you want life? Oh yes, but that is all right. You needn't worry about all that. 
But, I asked, how are we to get to life without getting the soul also? That seemed to puzzle him, so I followed it up. A nice time you'll have sometime when you're flying out there with the souls of thousands of flies and spiders and birds and cats buzzing and twittering and meowing all around you. You've got their lives, you know, and you must put up with their souls. Something seemed to affect his imagination, for he put his fingers to his ears and shut his eyes, screwing them up tightly, just as a small boy does when his face is being soaped. There was something pathetic in that that touched me. It also gave me a lesson, for it seemed that before me was a child, only a child, though the features were worn and the stubble on the jaws was white. It was evident that he was undergoing some process of mental disturbance, and knowing how his past moods had interpreted things seemingly foreign to himself, I thought I would enter into his mind as well as I could and go with him. The first step was to restore confidence. So I asked him, speaking pretty loud so that he would hear me through his closed ears, Would you like some sugar to get your flies round again? He seemed to wake up all at once and shook his head. With a laugh, he replied, Not much. Flies are poor things, after all. After a pause, he added, But I don't want their souls buzzing round me all the same. Or spiders, I went on. Blow spiders. What's the use of spiders? There isn't anything in them to eat, or... He stopped suddenly as they were reminded of a forbidden topic. So, so, I thought to myself, this is the second time he has suddenly stopped at the word drink. What does it mean? Renfield seemed himself aware of having made a lapse, for he hurried on as though to distract my attention from it. I don't take any stock at all in such matters. Rats and mice and such small deer, as Shakespeare has it, chicken feed of the larder, they might be called. I'm past all that sort of nonsense. You might as well ask a man to eat molecules with a pair of chopsticks as to try to interest me about the lesser carnivora when I know of what is before me. I see, I said. You want big things that you can make your teeth meet in. How would you like to breakfast on an elephant? What ridiculous nonsense you are talking. He was getting too wide awake, so I thought I would press him hard. I wonder, I said reflectively, what an elephant's soul is like. The effect I desired was obtained, for he at once fell from his high horse and became a child again. I don't want an elephant's soul or any soul at all, he said. For a few moments he sat despondently. Suddenly he jumped to his feet, with his eyes blazing and all the signs of intense cerebral excitement. To hell with you and your souls, he shouted. Will you plague me about souls? Haven't I got enough to worry and pain and distract me already without thinking of souls? He looked so hostile that I thought he was in for another homicidal fit, so I blew my whistle. The instant, however, that I did so, he became calm and said apologetically, for- Forgive me, doctor. I forgot myself. You do not need any help. I'm so worried in my mind that I am apt to be irritable. If you only knew the problem I have to face and that I am working out, you would pity and tolerate and pardon me. Pray do not put me in a straight waistcoat. I want to think, and I cannot think freely when my body is confined. I'm sure you will understand. He had evidently self-control, so when the attendants came, I told them not to mind, and they withdrew. Renfield watched them go. When the door was closed, he said with considerable dignity and sweetness, Dr. Seward, you have been very considerate towards me. Believe me that I am very, very grateful to you. I thought it well to leave him in this mood, and so I came away. There's certainly something to ponder over in this man's state. Several points seem to make what the American interviewer calls a story, if one could only get them in proper order.
Here they are. Will not mention drinking. Fears the thought of being burdened with the soul of anything. Has no dread of wanting life in the future. Despises the meaner forms of life altogether, though he dreads being haunted by their souls. Logically, all these things point one way. He has assurance of some kind that he will acquire some higher life. He dreads the consequence, the burden of a soul. Then it is a human life he looks to. And the assurance? Merciful God, the count has been to him, and there is some new scheme of terror afoot. Now that is a great way to end a section. Also, thank God somebody has finally cottoned on to, oh yeah, there's still a vampire we're chasing. Anyway, I do really love this book, and uh, and so my little criticisms of it like that are not meant to detract from that, because I really love this book. Like, I think it's a phenomenal novel, and I've really enjoyed reading this. So, now I'm going to stop my recording... I'm going to roll the end credits and the end music. And at the end of the end music, I'm just going to drop in the sounds of the waves and the wind from Sunset Beach for like five minutes. And I hope that's not terribly annoying. If it is, please fast forward. And if you're listening on headphones, especially earbud headphones, like crank the volume down when the music is done playing, please. I really don't want to hear that I deafened anybody. Thanks for listening. Happy episode 100. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org. Seriously, it's really loud. I uh, just, just wanted to say that one more time. Here you go.